anyone on the street, if you were to walk the streets, would, would, would agree with you, life brings pain. Life brings adversity, and, and it comes in different forms. There may uh, be heartache in your life with a, with a difficult marriage or a disappointment of a miscarried pregnancy or grief that you're bearing over a wayward, rebellious child. There can be fear and anxiety over the loss of a job or despair over hearing that you have cancer. And still others feel the, the frustration over lost dreams and dashed hopes and the loss of a position. And yet others experience the sting of injustice, the dull ache of loneliness and the incredible pain of unexpected grief. The hopelessness when you realize that whatever circumstance you currently face may never change. In addition to the scores of trouble that we may face in our own lives as Christians, we're also called to bear the pain of others. And, and none of the illustrations that I just gave are, are just pictures. In fact, I have heard of every one of these instances that I've listed. I've heard of these in the last 12 months right here in the body of our church. And I'm sure there's more that haven't reached my ears. Every one of these that I listed, I could put a name next to them. So when brothers and sisters hurt, we hurt. And yet on a, on a larger scale, we can read the news and see the grief, the, the heartache and pain on a, on a much more massive scale. War, terrorism, hurricanes, famine, radical injustice, murder, all of which happen daily on our planet. And yet those that live their lives from major pain still experience their frequently frustrating Circumstances or anxiety producing events of daily life that derail our plans and rob us of peace. A long planned vacation has to be canceled because of car repairs or the washing machine breaks the day before friends come for a visit or your computer loses the paper that you've been writing for two weeks, two hours before it's due in class. Instances like these are, are numerous. Life is full of trouble. And as we enter these crucibles, either large or small, we will be tempted to ask, is God trustworthy? And even when life seems to be going well, we, we never know what life holds for us. As Solomon said in Proverbs 27, 1, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Someone described life as like having a thick curtain hung across the path in front of us, a curtain that recedes before us as we advance, but, but only recedes one step at a time. None of us can know what's beyond the curtain. None of us could even tell what, what, what events a single day or an hour may bring into our life. And as believers, we're, we're told we're not immune to pain and trouble. In fact, we've looked at it the last two weeks. We should expect trouble in this life. And God brings those difficulties into our lives to refine us. And as we looked at last week, our response should be to, to counter it all joy because there's an end to, to these things that we suffer. There's a process to the trouble. And, and this morning, he continues as we face trouble. There's a, there's a power that comes 
for those that are in Christ. And so follow with me as I read. I'm gonna read verses two through eight in James chapter one. And we're gonna look at verses five through eight during our time this morning, but, but look at verse two and following. James writes, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Remember from last week, we're, we're talking about trials and troubles here as we begin the book. And, and if you were to read all the way through this section to verse 12, there's a, there's a summary of, of the subject. He says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We will be happy one day. We will rejoice one day, blessed as we sit through these trials that God brings in our lives and our reward will come when we're in heaven. And he's talking to us, Christian. He says in verse two, brothers and sisters, James is talking to you in verse two. We will meet various trials and it will be brought into our life to prove our faith. So these verses, one through 12, James is telling us that when we suffer and, and, and we will suffer, it will burn off the dross in our lives. It will mature us. It will develop those, those qualities of character that you lack and you become more like Jesus, more well-rounded, he said. And so when we come to verse five, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and do you see the point of this? This isn't talking about getting wisdom in general. It isn't talking about life decision. It's talking about prayer. It's not talking about prayer in general either. It's talking about when you enter this trial, when you're in the midst of the trouble, when you, when you have this, the main thing you need is wisdom. And that's what James is gonna drive home this morning for us. And how are you gonna get it? So here, that's where we're at this morning. We're, we're, we're gonna walk through these verses, verses five through eight. And if you came in, you received a, a bulletin and then a, a, a sheet of notes. And, and I have my outline in there this week. So I worked hard to get that to you. A, few, a couple people asked about that. And, and if you're curious, just so you're aware, there's extra sheets for those that wanna take notes in the foyer for those taking notes, and they have binders available for those that wanna keep that organized. But this morning, we're gonna look at those two points that are listed on, on the notes. First, we're to ask God for the wisdom you need, and, and second, we are to trust God for the wisdom you need. So real simply, ask God for the wisdom you need and trust God for the wisdom you need. So we're gonna, we're gonna look at that this morning, and before we do, I'm gonna pray, and so uh, I'll pray for you, you pray for me, and we'll get started. Father, we, we thank you again that we could gather together as the body of Christ and come and gather to worship you. And we have worshiped you in, in song. We have worshiped in, in, in the word and in prayer and in giving. And now, God, we come to worship together in the preaching of your word, the declaring of your word. And God, I ask that you would help your people that are seated here this morning to understand your word. And I know you'll challenge and, and, and convict them. I pray that you would help them to apply your word this morning and that as we leave this place in, in a little while, God, that we will come away from this time together different than when we came in. 
closer to you. And I pray that you would receive all the honor and glory for what happens here. I ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. So let's dive in here. First point, ask God for the wisdom you need. We, we have a problem when we get to verse five, I said, and the details are in the first four verses. That we have trials, and we all do, and we can't escape them. We can't remove them, we, we can't avoid them. We're, and we're taught by James in verse four to let the trials run their course so that we can be mature, we can be more well-rounded as a Christian. So this is good, it's helpful, but, but how do we let this happen? How, how do we allow those trials to run their course? And James gives the problem, the answer, and the result. And you see, friends, when you, when you face trials of various kinds, you're lacking something. And he says, you need wisdom. He says in verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to, to all without reproach and it will be given him. This is a conditional statement. It isn't suggesting that, that some need wisdom and others don't. No, we all lack wisdom when we meet trials. Suffering and trials doesn't automatically make you a better person. There are many, when faced with trials, that they don't become better, they become bitter. And, and, and they enter a trial kicking and screaming, and, and, and they walk into dark and, and, and thick tangle of circumstances, and they, they see no way of escape, and there's no stretch of the imagination that gives them any, any out of this misery that they find themselves. And what they need is wisdom. We all need wisdom when we enter a trial. But here's the difference. Here, here's the key if you're going to get anything out of this trial, if the trouble that God has given you. The key is you're going to actually wanting to mature and not regress. And to mature, you have to be humble enough to ask for wisdom. You have to humiliate yourself and declare that you don't know it all. And confess to God that, God, I need your wisdom in this. And if you cannot do that, you will not grow through the trial. And you will be forever stuck. And God will continue to allow this trial to work in your life. So we need wisdom, but, but what is it? How, how do we define wisdom? There are a few definitions that I came across in my study this week. One is wisdom is the endowment of the heart and mind which is needed for the right conduct of life. It, it gives the fuel for how to live our lives. Here's another. Wisdom is the ability to discern how God would have us live. Wisdom isn't simply knowledge because there are a lot of knowledgeable fools in this world. So it's more than knowledge. Wisdom takes insights gleaned from the knowledge of God's ways and applies them then to our daily walk. You see, knowledge is information. Wisdom is application. Knowledge is comprehending facts. Wisdom is handling life. Uh, knowledge, I like this one. Knowledge tells us how to take things apart. Wisdom shows us how to put them together. We need wisdom. So the problem is we are in trouble, and what's the answer? He says, let him ask God. The answer isn't to run. It isn't to seek the advice of the world. The answer is to seek the wisdom of God. And no matter how hard we work towards perfection, we cannot fill the lack of wisdom. James says, ask God. Simple, and yet hard for us to obey. We tend to want to involve, for the right reason, Others in the process, I think. Proverbs 13, 20, the, the scripture says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. And yet James doesn't encourage us here 
to find wise friends and walk with them, although the scriptures do. This proverb is still true. James is, though, making this personal for us. He says, let him ask God. You, you, you need godly people in your life who can intercede to the Father for you, but there are some things that you need directly from God that you'll never receive from others. Wisdom is one of those things. You, you need to go to God, you, you go. Now, I'm privileged when someone comes to me to seek wisdom and help or, or come to the elder board or go to a trusted friend, but, but we, we aren't God. We, we can know the word and we can study the word and apply the word and we can pray for you, but only God gives this sort of wisdom that he says here. And, and the wisdom you need in the midst of trials, the first wisdom we should seek is wisdom from God, and it happens through prayer. James continues and gives us reasons why we should ask God. And I love these. There's four here as you look through verse five. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So the first reason, we, we ask God because God gives. After instructing us to ask God for wisdom, James answers by informing us that God gives the wisdom needed. And, and what he's saying is, God is a giving God. He is a gracious God who, who loves to give. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. Friends, this is our God. He is, a, he is a giving God. He gives continually. His, his arms are always outstretched, always ready to give. And a few verses later, Matthew 7, verse 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who's in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We have a good God who, who loves to give. And not only does he give, James says, second, he gives generously. The word generously means simple, single, or sincere. He, he gives a pure gift. He, he gives with no strings attached. The gift of God's wisdom. And we know that sometimes a person's generosity is not true generosity. Sometimes we do this without thinking, and sometimes we do it on purpose. God gives generously, liberally, and he, he doesn't do it with an, with an expectation. There, there are no strings attached with God. But unfortunately, this happens with humans. That's why husbands give wives on their anniversaries a vacuum or a kitchen appliance. Don't do it, men. It's not wise. It's not so with God. He he doesn't give generously with some hidden agenda. There's no strings attached. And the third, God gives generously to all. And do you see it there in the verse five? There isn't one person that deserves it more than another. This, this is divine generosity and there's no discrimination. God most definitely doesn't play any favorites. Favoritism is a common theme in this book and we'll get to it in chapter two. In Matthew 20, Jesus tells the story of a landowner who, who kept on going out to hire workers, and they're all hired at different parts of the day, and some worked more hours than others. But when the day ended, the landowner paid them all the same amount, and what did they do? They, they grumbled. The landowner responded with a powerful question. He says, don't I have the right to do what I want with what belongs to me? This is what it's like to be God. He is the only one who has the right to do what he wants with his own. And James says... He chooses to be generous to all who ask. There is no favoritism. 
And then the last part, the fourth part of that, God gives generously to all without reproach. There's never the opportunity for us to feel shame and asking God for wisdom during a trial. And I know there's people in this world that you would never ask for help because you would never hear the end of it. They would lecture you about the foolishness or or how often you've asked them for help, but this isn't our God. There's no chiding. There's no scolding. You don't have to worry about going to God and feel like you're going to exhaust him. You won't. You'll never exhaust God by going to him and asking for wisdom. You don't have to worry that you go to God and that he's going to be irritated with you. Oh, you're coming back again, Jeff? I've already said this, Jeff. You don't get it, Jeff. That's not how God works. God gives generously to all without reproach. You don't have to worry that God would make fun of you for asking. He's our father and he delights to give. And when Solomon became the king of Israel, God said he would give him anything. First Kings 3, 5, God said, ask, what shall I give you? Now, if you're in Solomon's shoes, what would you ask for? He, we, we know a few verse later, Solomon answered. He said, give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? He, he asked for wisdom. And it pleased God, and God gave it to him along with wealth and success and longevity. But, but listen, friends, the gift of wisdom, wisdom isn't just a, a one-time gift for one person, Solomon, and no one else. No, God has said that he will give us the same. He'll give us the same wisdom. And James ends, James ends the verse with that promise. He says, and it will be given him. God promises not to give you all the answers as to the why you may be experiencing this trial. I don't think that'll help you necessarily. Many desire the answers to the why. And in that, that becomes an idol. I I, I need to know why. When God wants us to, to grow and mature through the midst of the trouble. And God will give wisdom not always to the reasons why we're experiencing the trouble, but the wisdom may just be for how. How can we honor God? In this trial, what is God refining in us in this trouble? So, friends, that's the the first way to have power for facing trouble. Number one, ask God for the wisdom you need. Number two, trust God for the wisdom you need. If you read the text carefully, you see a, a natural progression. James says that trials demand wisdom, and then he says that wisdom demands prayer, and that prayer demands faith. We've looked at verse five as James commands us to ask God for wisdom, and this is. For everyone, this is for all of us. But in the final three verses, six through eight, James says, this is the way in which you receive the promises of God. You, you trust that God will supply. Look at verse six. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It begins right in verse six, when we come to God to ask for wisdom, we don't come doubting that he can give it to us. No, we come and ask in faith. And this is an issue for some Christians, simply because they've they've forgotten the gospel. 
And what do I mean? Well, some believe and rationalize their doubt because they believe that they're undeserving, which if we're being totally honest, and we should be honest, uh, you, uh, you and I are totally undeserving of God's grace and love for us. But if we get stuck there, we've forgotten the gospel. That is why the gospel needs to be remembered. You and I come to the cross, remember what Christ did for us. And he already dealt with our sins and he promises to keep us and to supply for us, to give us all that we need. So why is today any different? You see, doubt is the enemy of faith. And our culture views doubt as a virtuous thing. Philosophers use doubt as an organizing principle for their investigations, and popular culture uses doubt to fuel their drive for more popularity. But the Bible never views doubt as an activity or a condition that's good in itself. There are certainly psalms that encourage believers to, to take their questions to God when his plan is hidden or, or faced with evil. But we, we need to admit our doubts in order to seek the truth. And, and you see throughout the Gospels, Jesus is very gracious with those that have doubts. But listen, friends, doubt is never considered intrinsically good. If doubt leads to a blessing, it is owed to the honesty of the one who doubts and then their willingness to accept God's answers, God's truth. Doubters must be willing to leave their questions behind and trust God with a whole heart. And maybe that's you here today, friend. Maybe you've been invited or you just slipped into the church this morning and and you're not a Christian, but you wanted to check out what, what happens here every week. And we're happy they're here, but perhaps you're, you're here to deal with your doubts about God. Perhaps you have been living a life of doubts, doubting that God could ever love you, doubting that you're really that bad, doubting that you really need to bow the knee in faith and trust in God for salvation, not yourself. Friends, we, we all come to God with, with doubts, but through faith that God gives us, we can come away redeemed, changed. And, and doubters must be willing to leave their questions behind and trust God with a whole heart. Turn from their doubts, from themselves, and, and turn to God in faith that he gives and trust in him wholly. And for you Christians here this morning, doubt seen here in the text is, is doubt against the character of God. This isn't just intellectual doubt. This is a war against the disposition of a sovereign God. It's a conflict of loyalties is what he's talking about. A doubting person oscillates between faith and skepticism. And James is telling you this morning, continue to be the person of faith when you come to God in prayer. And James is not telling you that only perfectly confident prayers will be answered. We're not to trust in ourselves and our prayers. We're to trust in God. So if you're, you're tempted to doubt God, you should doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. You got that? And James gives us two reasons why we should pray with no doubting. First is a description of what God thinks of the doubter at the end of verse six. He says, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. James, growing up with his older brother near the Sea of Galilee, I'm sure had memories flooding his mind over this. And he would have gone out on the boat with his brother a few times, I'm sure, growing up. Mark gives us a story, one of those times of Jesus on the boat. Mark writes, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking the boat, and so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? 
just a, a picture again. And maybe only a few of us possibly here have experienced anything like this on, on a boat crashing and uncertain. But think about it. Think about this illustration, this analogy. Think about it just this week of some of our own brothers and sisters in the Lord who experienced this Friday morning on the East Coast. Did you turn on the news and see Hurricane Florence? Boy, what a vivid analogy this is to them. Spurgeon has something to say about the analogy. He says, like a wave of the sea. Well, a wave of the sea is very unrestful. You see it coming, rolling up from a distance on, on its sweeps and never stops. Uh, out on the broad Atlantic, what a life a wave seems to have. Never still, never for a second in one stay. Now up like a mountain, then down again like a great abyss. Such is the life of an undecided man. He does not know where he is, and you do not know where to find him. He's never quiet, never still, never at rest. The man who is ever shilly, shally, playing a seesaw all his life, knows nothing of real rest. Friends, when, when God is not trusted, the only way to go is from bad to worse. And your life has seemed like a ship being beaten around in the water when strong waves come. And furthermore, the one who doubts when he going to the Lord in prayer is fooling themselves. James says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He says that the one who doubts thinks he can pray to God, not thinking that God will actually answer, and then somehow possibly God might. They suppose that God will grant their request, even though they really don't trust God for what they're asking. And the doubter who thinks this way is confused about who God is and how God works. And perhaps they just simply have forgotten. James says, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And the word anything is not an absolute here. Matthew 5, 45 says that God makes the sun rise on evil and on the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. This is, this is called common grace. And it's the favor poured out on all of humanity, whether they believe or reject God. So this word anything doesn't mean that God will not do, will do nothing, but it needs to be understood in the context of this prayer. God still does many things for those who doubt, but James is saying that the doubter shouldn't expect to receive anything from God when it comes in prayer. James is clear in verse seven. And God doesn't think kindly of those that doubt when they come to him in prayer. We should pattern our lives over those that we read in scripture, like Hezekiah, when he received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And he said, Hezekiah, pray the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And incline your ear, O Lord, and hear, open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words which he has sent to mock the living God. See, it's, it's a yet assertive prayer that Hezekiah prays. He comes confidently to the throne of God. And that's how we should as, as believers when we come in the midst of trials, needing wisdom. But the, the final devastating description of the one who doubts is in verse eight though. James says, the one who doubts, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word double-minded is unique to this epistle. Many scholars believe that James coined this word, and it's a striking word. It means to be double-souled. 
It is two different people. It doesn't mean duplicity or deceitfulness. It describes something far worse. It means your, your, your doubt is rooted in divided loyalties. He's trying to convey the fact that you're serving two masters. You're serving two gods in which Jesus said is impossible. Do you remember in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And this person, this double-minded one, is divided between faith and the world. This is why I believe, after living in a foreign country and traveling in many countries over the world, that America is one of the hardest places to live as an obedient Christian. One of the most troubling thoughts I've had as a pastor of an American church is the growing awareness that there are many nominal Christians sitting in these seats every Sunday morning. Nominal, meaning they're in name only. And I gotta be honest, I'm not worried about the culture. I'm not worried about the pressure from the Northwest and the liberal mindset. That doesn't keep me awake at night. I'm worried about those that are in our midst that are double-minded. See, a double-minded person is the one who on the outside says that they believe in God and they want to follow him, but on the inside they could care less. They don't want God they don't want to obey God's word. And I know that some of you have given God your afterlife, but you haven't given him your life now. Now there are some that are double-minded here every week. And I pray that God would use his word to bring conviction to your soul and you would trust in God alone. There are many parents here concerned and rightly so about the influence of the world and their kids. And they protect them and shelter them in, in the right way from evil that would come into their lives. And we shouldn't be so quick to expose our kids to evil that surrounds us, yet in America, we can easily raise our kids to hate what is outwardly evil and yet love that which is destructive to faith, to doubt God. We can easily raise our children to have a divided faith. We can raise double-minded kids by living our lives separated from actual lived-out faith. And as parents, we need to think long and hard, how are we living out our faith in front of our kids? When trouble comes, how do we respond in front of our kids? What are they learning? You know, they're watching us. What are they learning from us? What are they learning from us as a church family? Do we trust God? Or are we double-minded? Outwardly we say, but in our life we don't apply. 
Deuteronomy 6.5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There's only one God, and this God demands our total devotion. Double-mindedness is the opposite of total devotion and an offense to our living God. Later on in James chapter four, verse eight, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, the double-minded has a sinful heart and needs to be cleansed to draw near to God. This is the one who James calls the doubter. They are double-minded, they're double-souled. In his classic story, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan calls such a person Mr. Facing Both Ways. That's impossible. It's impossible physically and spiritually. James says later in chapter four, verse four, a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And conversely, a person who is truly a friend of God becomes an enemy of the world, becomes a fool in the world's eyes. The world's way of thinking doesn't equate with with that of a Christian. And this is the challenge, friends. Don't believe that you can continue on this path of doubt. It's a constant civil war, thinking that you can trust and doubt at the same time, hoping for the best and expecting the worst, trying to be a friend of God and, and the world at the same time. It, it doesn't work. Elijah said the same thing in 1 Kings 18. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. How long, friends, will you continue to live in double-mindedness? If God is who he says he is, we need to trust him. We need to follow him. We need to serve him. Faith says yes. Unbelief says no. Doubt says yes and no at the same time. And it's unstable. You see the end of verse 8? Like a staggering drunk, the double-minded person takes one step towards God and then the next step away from God. He's unstable in all his faith. He's, un, he's unable to stand firm in faith. He's, he's not just unstable in his prayer life. No, James says that he is unstable in all his ways. It's like the man, after riding in a boat and coming to the dock, they need to step off the boat onto the ground. But when the boat begins to move away from the dock... Uh, they begin to worry and, and fearful of letting go of the boat and fall in. But James says here, stop straddling both. Stop straddling the boat and the ground. Get off the boat of the fears and, and, and the, the worship of this world and life of this world and get on the firm ground of God and his word. That is the power in, in seeking God for wisdom in our life that God brings. And so that's our our job this morning, asking God for the wisdom that we need and then trusting God for the wisdom that you need and you ask for. We, we need God's wisdom when we're faced with trials so that we can respond with them with, with patience and maturity and we can have full assurance that when we go to God and we ask for wisdom that he gives generously to all who ask. And for, for years and years in the Christian faith, those that have struggled in this life have clung to certain verses to, to hold them and help them through. And, and one passage in particular that has helped many, many of you probably in my life also is Romans 8. It's one of those passages, Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep being to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Do you believe that this morning? Maybe you do. Maybe you've forgotten, though. And I know that some of you come in this morning just beat down, just bruised by life. And friends, God knows. And if you're in Christ, he is for you. He, he did more than just pat you on the back. He didn't hold anything back for you. He gave his son for you. And so he will graciously give you all things. And nothing, friends, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing. And if you're tempted to doubt God, you should doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs. You preach the word to yourself. Preach it to your hearts, friends. Nothing should separate us from the love of Christ. Not tribulation, not persecution, not danger, nothing. And if God is for us, no one is against us. And when we face these various trials, we need to let God have its, his work in our lives. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it'll be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Father, we know, we know intimately that trials and trouble and pain are never popular subjects to talk about. And yet you spend a lot of time in scripture on this very subject. And everyone seated here this morning has suffered in some way. And we recognize there's yet more to come. The phone will ring later this week or next week or next month. And I pray that you will drop these truths from your word deep into our hearts so when the phone rings and when trouble comes, we will know what to do and how to glorify you. How you will ask for your wisdom. I pray for those that doubt you this morning. I pray that your word would come alive to them, become deep seated in their hearts, and would work conviction in them and build trust that you would give faith to them to believe. I pray for those that are not yours this morning. I ask that you would redeem them, Father. And I pray with all my heart, God, that you awaken each one of us today to the sweetness and loveliness of the glory, glorious gospel declared by Christ 
and that we would reflect his glory in all that we do. For I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.